Welcome to Complementary, a series covering the principles and practices of interface design hosted by Katie Langerman and Anthony Hobday. Today, we're sharing some tips on how to improve your visual design skills. So as a podcast about interface design, it seems like we should cover how to actually improve your visual design skills as a designer. Mm. Yeah, it feels like a, a popular topic and... I think just the nature of visual design means that it's quite hard to learn if you suddenly decided, okay, I'm going to get twice as good at visual design over the next two years. Does someone know how they can actually go and do that? Uh, I'm curious about your experience because I always like to ask designers about their approach to visual design. I know you've got a graphic design background. I'm wondering if you have ever sort of intentionally gone in and tried to improve your visual design skills. Hmm. I think most of my, most of the learning that I've done over the years is on the job. So, because mm-hmm. I'm self-taught for interface design. So I've just improved kind of naturally over time of working with design, different designers over the years and working on different products, taking different opportunities at work. Uh, I think the first like real visual design opportunity I had in my previous job kind of fell onto my plate, um, like a right time, right place kind of situation, but it was all surrounding a rebrand. And so there was a lot of open-ended design questions that I was given the opportunity to answer. And Mm. so I I guess that's sort of how I have approached it is like um, just taking opportunities to work on it at work yeah, and on side projects too, like working on your own personal site, working on different projects gives you space to kind of flex. But I think being able to bounce ideas off of other designers and get feedback at work has been really beneficial to me. Yeah. And I think not to put you in a bucket, but that's quite a common approach to improving visual design is that someone doesn't necessarily intentionally do it. They do it based on a need. And they do it based on their experiences at work or things that they're almost required to do or would have been required to do anyway. And so it seems quite rare that someone goes and intentionally improves their visual design. Um, that's It's something I did just because I think I, I appreciated that visual design is valued, even though people try to downplay the value. And, and so I thought, OK, I'm going to go and read some books about visual design. And I found there weren't really any. Uh, that wasn't true, literally, because there are some. But there's not as many of those as there are of general UX design books or interface design books. Mm-hmm. And that always frustrated me. So I basically threw myself into how one can learn visual design and improve at it in a sort of systematic way. And so I've definitely approached it in a slightly different way from some. But I think the approach you're describing is the most common in that people basically go and learn it without necessarily realizing how much they're learning. And it, it comes down to this split. I loved once I found it because it explained a lot between tacit and explicit knowledge. And so explicit knowledge, to uh, quickly use a non-interface design example, is something you basically could learn from a book or that could be written down. And so if someone goes and learns chess, you can become a chess grandmaster probably by reading books. And that's because you learn all these patterns about how to move pieces. I know next to nothing about chess, so this could be completely wrong. (laughs) But I suspect you can learn a lot more about chess than you can about visual design by reading books. And so that's an example of explicit knowledge. It's easy to write down, whereas tacit or implicit knowledge 
is stuff that usually people learn with their hands, like playing a piano, where you can't read a book to learn how to play a piano. You have to go and do it and you learn the muscle memory and you your fingers learn to sort of move in a certain way. And so you, you couldn't go and read a book and become a grandmaster equivalent on the piano. I'm sure there's a level eight or whatever it is in mm -hmm. uh, piano speak. And so I, I think that's why most people end up learning visual design or getting better at it because they're doing things at their job and they're trying all these problems or trying all these approaches, maybe making some mistakes and uh, essentially going from there, uh, but also learning from other people. So it sounds like you were working with other people and that helped you to yeah. get better. Yeah. I, I think what you're describing with explicit knowledge is almost like hands-on learning where people say like they're not book smart, but they, they can learn by doing. And I feel like that is very much how I operate. I'm not great at retaining information that I have read. Like it's it's better if I take notes on it and can kind of retain it that way. But I always need a purpose. Um, that's part of why I wanted to do this podcast because it's given me a purpose to try and go back to my roots and learn things that I know I've learned in the past or I guess relearn things and try and integrate it back into my brain. <laughs> of my skill set mm. for design, but I've always been very much learned by doing. So I could read about grid systems or I could play around with a grid system in, in CSS or in Figma and like learn it that way and learn more, more by feel, I think. Yeah. I think even if you're, some people basically learn because they're making mistakes and they're learning how they fix those mistakes. And they make a thousand mistakes and learn a thousand solutions. Or maybe they learn that there's 200 solutions to the thousand problems, whatever it is. And um, I think you're right. That's where the sort of implicit knowledge comes in or the tacit knowledge in that you are sort of bouncing into walls and learning how to avoid those walls next time. Whereas if you're more intentional, often you're intentional in a way where you set the problem in a way that you can't really make mistakes. Like you say, oh, I'm going to design a website. And then you start running into a problem and you think, oh, I'll just change the prompt, basically change the brief so that I don't run into that problem. And it's in solving that problem that you learn more about visual design in this case or interaction design. And so those real world problems are generally much more useful, I found, just because they're forcing you to face issues that you wouldn't have faced otherwise. And uh, the next time you face that issue, suddenly you realize you're a better designer. Whereas uh, if you're being intentional about learning you're probably avoiding the hard stuff just because hard stuff is annoying. Like why, why wouldn't you? you know? This kind of makes me think about, um, I guess, slow. so hands-on learning for me and learning on the job have been like a huge part of my career. Just like always kind of saying yes, even though I didn't know how to do something and then figuring mm. out when I was doing it. And I think that sometimes holds people back where they feel like they have to learn everything before they can take the job, uh, like, no, so much of us, so many of us do not know what we're doing and we're learning on the job. And I think that's part of it. And if, if that's how you like to learn, like what better way to have the pressure of your job and to have it, hopefully other designers to work with, to like instill that knowledge into you versus feeling like you have to learn a bunch of stuff up front before you can even get the job. So I guess I'm, I'm just saying this because I always feel like people are afraid to take the leap and just do the thing and learn it on the job. Yes. Um, but I love to encourage people to just do it. 
it's a great way to learn is just getting in there if you can. I think I think you're right. And it is probably one of the best ways to learn because it's a bit more natural. You don't have to be as intentional and as sort of systematic about it. Uh, one of the problems that I face, and I think a lot of designers face, is that they don't necessarily get those opportunities at work. Mm. Uh, I, I've never worked under a designer who's more senior than me in terms of their skill set. Uh, I've always been basically the first designer in a, in a company, or I've come in as a peer of another designer. And so I've never really had, I've had product managers managing me, but I never had designers managing me in the sense that they are teaching me things I don't know. And so it's always had to be this self-directed learning where basically I'm exploring problems outside of work just because work isn't presenting problems or learning opportunities for me uh, as part of the day-to-day. -day. And so I think if that hadn't been true for me, I probably wouldn't have approached it in this way uh, so systematically. Mm -hmm. And um, I, think, I think you're right. Any designer who has the opportunity to work on those sorts of things that will challenge their skill set should absolutely do it because it's a much more natural way to learn, uh, like I said. And it, that ties into something you said earlier, which is learning from other people. Uh, I didn't have that opportunity, but I think watching other people work and ask, talking to them about how they approach something is, uh, is a huge help. It's essentially like ad hoc mentorship. But if you have a sort of a legitimate, more official mentor, that's even good as well. Um, that sort of ad hoc mentorship where you can watch someone else design something teaches you a lot. And um, I remember a simple example where someone came in and they were junior to me in the company I was working for. But they were a designer and they were working on a problem that I had been working on. They were taking it over. That was their first project. So I was handing it off to them. And they used essentially a visual interaction design pattern that I hadn't even considered for that sort of problem. And it's not that I've never seen it before, but it's that I just hadn't thought about it. And so I was in like a bubble where I wasn't considering it. To be specific, it was if you've got like a, a, an accordion section. Um, there's a few different ways you can show the person that they can expand that accordion section. And I was doing things basically like a, a chevron, let's say, besides the um, the name, like the title of the accordion section, or I was doing the word show that would change to the word hide on the far right-hand side of the accordion section. And they came in and replaced that show and hide toggle with the chevron, right? And so it just looked neater and it was still relatively clear, I think, how it worked. And so when I saw them do that, I thought, why didn't I consider that? And so even that person who was coming in as a junior to me was showing me things that I hadn't considered in this context. And, uh, and so that, that's a, a huge help when you're uh, learning things. And now I never don't consider that approach to that specific problem just because it was sort of drilled into me in that specific moment. Oh, I should consider this every time. Mm -hmm. And so it uh, really helps you improve visual design if you can basically watch people do it. And uh, I would say that doesn't have to be people at work. You can find uh, Twitch streams where people have basically designed something from scratch and it's like an eight hour long Twitch stream. I don't recommend you go and watch all of it, but you might find <laughs> it useful if you sit down and watch someone design something. You'll see a lot of things they do that aren't what you would do. And that's where a lot of that value lies, I think. Yeah, I completely agree. That's a really good tip about Twitch. I didn't think about that one. Um, I've been fortunate to have some really great coworkers that I can watch in Figma. There's just nothing better than jamming together in Figma and just like mm. working through something and seeing, even just seeing their process, how they set up their files, how they organize, how they iterate. Um, it's yeah. so valuable and has been really helpful for me in my career. I, I'd like to talk about something that is, um, is not that essentially, it's the opposite of that. If you can't have that sort of mentorship or watching over someone's shoulder, 
Uh, well, one thing you can do, which is a, a big tip um, that floats around quite often, is that you can basically take someone else's work without knowing who they are and recreate it from scratch. That's a big way to see some of those decisions they made uh, after the fact. And they, you might not arrive at what they did in the same way they did, right? Because they probably took more passes at it, whereas you're recreating something that you can already see. But um, it's definitely a way to get a sense of how someone works and uh, discover patterns that you weren't aware of before. So that's um, that's usually a good recommendation if you're working or learning alone, essentially, is that you can recreate people's work and get a slightly different perspective on it. But um, the main thing I want to talk about with terms of if you have to design on your own and want to improve that skill set is to take a systematic approach. And I think you'll have perspective on this because you're a design systems <laughs> sort of focused designer. But um, I think generally I found that the more systematic you can be when designing an interface, the better it will look. And so this, we have covered this, I think, in an earlier episode, but um, there's so much of good interface design that that falls out of a systematic approach, like layout and sort of orderly interfaces. And so it might not be as expressive, but um, if you learn to take a systematic approach, which you can sort of learn more explicitly from books and things, then actually you end up with something that's a lot closer to good visual design than if you try to sort of feel it out from scratch when you, you don't know enough. Uh, and part of that on a, a broader level, which I think is, ties into your work even more, is basically patterns that you can use. So if you go and look at a lot of good design and see the patterns people use, you'll start to recognize uh, sort of repeated patterns. Like, oh, okay, so every time this person designs a title, they do it this way with like a subheading. That's something you can add to your toolkit, basically, and use the next time you're designing a title. And maybe you have five of those you like to use. Uh, and I suspect uh, on the design system, work you're doing, you're essentially making some of the visual design decisions for people before they even open up Figma. Mm -hmm. Exactly. We're, we're trying to systemize all those little bits and pieces to give them to put together into, into their designs. But it's a little bit mm -hmm. different, I think, building for an existing design. Like GitHub has a, has a look to it, has a design already. So you're sort of anything yeah. new you're making for it has to fit into that system so you don't have the room to don't always have the room to explore something completely new that you would working on like a side project or something else outside of it mm. so it's those systems are critical i think for myself in in side projects there's like libraries that i'm often reaching for that i think help me sort of establish some of those patterns even if I'm using a library to produce something like shadows or spacing or typography, I'm still learning about those decisions because I'm integrating it into my design. So I think it's not necessarily like people really hate on Tailwind quite a bit on Twitter. <laughs> um, and I don't use Tailwind. Uh, I'm not like personally a fan of it, but I think tools like that can help you um, evaluate what is being used and how to integrate it into your design is is a good approach. I really like open props. I don't know if you've heard of this. Um, no. It's just a CSS library that is just kind of all the nice little basics like sizing, animation, motion, all these little bits and pieces, um, but it's not very opinionated about design. There are colors available, but it's very free and kind of open. I guess that's why it's called open mm. props. Um, and I really like that tool because it 
I can kind of see like, well, how are they doing drop shadows and open props? Because I'm not sure how I want to approach that in, in this design. Yeah. And I can take what they're doing or I could tweak it or, you know, try and figure out why they're doing what they're doing and how it fits into the bigger system. So tons of um, stuff out there like that. Yeah, and I think it's it's almost a case of some of those decisions you're talking about, the foundational decisions, you shouldn't have to think about them that much as a designer. And so I think most designers, if you ask them, would say that they're using a spacing or typography scale based on multiples of two and generally multiples of eight. Uh, and that sort of thing, you could basically choose that and it will look good. I mean, not by default, but it will look better than if you used a random spacing scale or no spacing scale at all. And, and so as a designer who's trying to improve, you shouldn't really have to be thinking about those things until much later in the process, even though they're foundational. You can just use the the sort of wise defaults you've been talking about in open mm -hmm. props and give yourself more time to think about the, the the bigger picture stuff of like, what story should this website tell or how do I want this interface to be structured in terms of where people are looking? And so, I think the more time you spend on those smaller decisions about things like spacing, the sort of less chance you're giving yourself to think about the, the bigger stuff. And so um, I think it's perfectly fine to go in and basically use those standardized approaches uh, because they've almost been proven to work, you know, there. Um, I do, I, I mentor people every once in a while and I've helped quite a few people to improve their visual design. And the first thing I always say is, okay, I've taken a look at what you've made and the biggest problem is things like spacing and alignment. And so hmm. please just use a very simple systematic approach. Go in, like set out your uh, margins and everything. If it's like a mobile screen, uh, choose like two colors, choose a few type sizes and redo this screen with those sort of limits in mind. It always improves their visual design basically overnight. And it, it's, that is explicit in the sense that you don't have to learn how to use margins. You know, you can learn it in about five minutes and then keep it forever in your head. And so that's what thing always frustrates me. It's like this conversation should be about something that's much harder to do as a designer, whereas actually this conversation has to be for now about something that's much easier to do. And that's a good thing because we can improve their visual design overnight. But uh, it's all, always uh, a frustrating thing just because uh, it, it should be they shouldn't have to think about it in the first place. They should be doing that sort of thing, you know, uh, as second nature. Mm -hmm. And I guess everyone has to learn it from this from scratch at some point, right? So I'm not saying that people should be born <laughs> with the knowledge of grids, but um, yeah, taking that systematic approach is like a really easy way overnight to improve visual design. And so I wish more people sort of learned that from the start yep. and relied on those defaults you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, which I think sort of leads me to my next point which is uh, sort of the importance of details. And actually this feels, if you take that systematic approach, those details take care of themselves almost. I'm talking about the details in the bigger, more expressive stuff. And so if you're deciding how your website hero section should look, for example, there's thousands of details you can consider as you're designing that, that aren't necessarily about spacing or they might be about tweaking spacing, but they're about how everything fits together. And one thing that bothers me about, about this is that good visual design is often about obsessing over details. I'm not sure someone can learn to obsess over details. So I'm interested to hear your thoughts because that is the one that always sticks in my head as, can I teach someone to be more obsessive or do they have to have it from the start? Oh my gosh, that is such a hard question. That is, because <laughs> that's something that I, I find frustrating, I guess, sometimes is 
Um, it can be hard to collaborate with other designers if you are not on the same page of how mm. obsessive about details to be. I've worked with designers who are extremely into the details and those are just like really fun, passionate work sessions because <laughs> you're both like striving for excellence. Um, but if somebody doesn't see the details, then it can feel like you're nitpicking at their designs or they don't understand the point. Why, like, why is that important? We're just trying to ship this thing. I think a lot of people experience that with developers as well, especially if, if you've spent hours obsessing over details and then you work with a developer who is not as obsessed with details, it can feel like a, a big slog to basically get them to notice those details. Right. And it, it could be, I, I'm not saying that they're always important details. It could be that the designer has spent too long on that and that the developer is in sort of in, in a better place in terms of how much effort should we be spending on this thing. But yeah, I've definitely felt that uh, divide before. And um, it can be frustrating because it's not just a switch that people can flip, you know. Oh, I'll care about details today. That's why I work in design systems. <laughs> because I feel like I can force people to have high quality details in their design, whether they want to or not, because it's there. Mm. I've given it to you. <laughs> you have to. It's just going to look like that. Don't break it. It's there. <laughs> yeah, you're in the business of, uh, again, helping people to not have to care about that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, or if they do care about it, they can just feel appreciative that you've already given them this uh, toolkit that helps them to not think about the details so much, but feel comfortable that they are represented well. I worry that this comes actually down to leadership in a, if we're talking about like a corporate environment of people caring or not caring about the details, because if you're mm -hmm. getting pressure from above to ship something quickly, there's no incentive for you to agonize over the design details of whatever it is. If you're getting um, mentorship and support from above and, you know, leaders that appreciate visual design and uh, can point out when you're doing a good job with design or can point out when it's lacking quality, then suddenly you're incentivized to improve and push the envelope there. So mm -hmm. in a corporate setting, because I'm trying to think about like how do you, you – you can't switch it on, on or off. I can't tell someone to be more passionate about their work. <laughs> like that's going to come down to so many different things, how much they care, you know. Yeah. So the incentives are definitely um, important. And it's one of the things I, I see a lot when people talk about how high quality software gets produced is often one of the reasons it got produced in the first place is because the leadership of the, the company cared about quality. And often that means that the leadership of the company is a designer, you know, like a mm -hmm. designer co-founded the company or something. And so you get that the support you're talking about. But yeah, that, that's the one that always sort of bothers me the most because we've talked about taste before on this podcast. I don't believe that taste is uh, something you're born with. And I think it's something you can learn. But I think obsession over details might be something you are essentially born with in that I don't think a person at age 30 can suddenly turn around and say, I'm going to obsess over details now. I think they have to want to do it sort of naturally. And uh, that's always a bit of a concern for me if people turn around and say, well, I can see that a lot of the jobs I want to apply to care a lot about visual design skills. How can I improve at that? I could, for example, help that person to improve to a certain extent, but if they don't care about those details and are not willing to obsess over them, 
then there's a level they basically can't reach. And so that's always annoyed me of like, can I help someone who doesn't care about details produce really good visual design? Um, maybe they can get to like 80%. It goes beyond design at that point. It's a personality trait. I'm, I'm reading a book about mm. perfectionism, perfectionism right now. And I think it's, I think probably many designers are perfectionists throughout different aspects of their life, not just design. And maybe it shows up in different ways, but that is a trait that is sort of described as something that you just are, <laughs> like you're kind of born that way. I don't know that you can learn to be a perfectionist. It's just part of your personality. So I think it manifests yeah. itself in design for many people, myself included. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's definitely the right kind of uh, career if, if you are that way. Yeah. And um, it's a shame you corrected yourself because I think the sentence I'm reading a book about perfectionism <laughs> Is, uh, is, oh, is one that hurt. <laughs> yeah. That's the sort of thing I really enjoy. Uh, and you can you can act as if you intentionally said it and uh, it was just a funny joke. So. <laughs> All good. Uh, but I, I guess the, the last point I wanted to make is like a, a broad theme about how to improve visual design is about... And I, I think people don't uh, think about this as often because they think of it as a skill set. But actually, your skill set is working on materials. So like, just like a person building a wall, you know, they know how to build the wall, but then they need to go and get the stone and maybe they've got better or worse stone. It's important to recognize that quality in generally leads to better quality out. And the materials we use in interface design are things like typefaces and color combinations and uh, imagery is a big one, illustration, that sort of thing. The icon sets we use, all of those things are essentially materials that we're not necessarily choosing for ourselves, but that we have to be able to recognize the quality and use them in a way that sort of uh, best represents their quality. And so one of the ways you can improve a, an interface without touching the layout or any of the choices you necessarily made from scratch is to change the typeface, for example. And so you could take a website set in Times New Roman and change the typeface to something like, uh, I think it's called Newsreader on Google Fonts, which is a nicely designed sort of uh, sans, uh, no, serif font. And uh, you probably improve the design in the in the course of you know five seconds and so i think that's an important point if someone doesn't feel like they can improve their skill set they can at least improve the selection of materials they're choosing from hmm. and uh you know use better icons make sure the icon set is cohesive and they're not pulling from different icon sets and so that sort of quality in quality out is a, a way to improve your visual design without having to improve your skill set although there is understandably a element of how do you choose the Good materials in the first place right you have to be able to recognize a well-designed typeface uh, but even then there are things you can do like if i only use typefaces from this type foundry that i know makes good stuff because everyone talks about them all the time then i can feel relatively certain that it'll be a good typeface and i don't have to think about it again mm -hmm. uh, which comes back to that um i think it was um massimo vignelli who only used five typefaces in his career famously maybe infamously and it might not be true for his whole career, but basically he found five good typefaces that um, would always work for him and he just stuck to those. And so he didn't have to think about good materials. He just used what he knew and um, it helped him be better. Yeah, I think this this kind of ties back to picking like libraries or frameworks to use. Mm. Like, like I mentioned Tailwind earlier. I think Tailwind is like their goal is to basically be your one-stop shop 
So like we figured out, we have, we solved it. This is visual design. You can build anything with this. You don't need to think about it anymore. Um, which I think is kind of boring. So if you can explore different options and I think it's fine to rely on the same options every time, but I don't know, think outside the box a little bit, but find things that speak to you that you can rely on for all of your designs or most of them. Yeah, I think that's, um, we, I think we talked about this in the beauty episode, but there's definitely an element there of uh, novelty is generally considered better visual design. If something feels new, uh, everything else being the same, that feels better uh, as far as visual design goes. And um, that's another one of those things that you can't learn sort of explicitly in visual design very easily is how do I make this design feel like it's unusual or unfamiliar in a way that is good. And so those are the things that come from sort of a lot of exposure to good design over time. You just pick up these patterns and, and ways you can approach a problem. Um, and so I, unfortunately, I would say that improving your visual design in some ways is an overnight change. In some ways, it's a five-year change. And uh, you have to be prepared to sort of put that time in if you want to become really good. But luckily, that time being put in is actually quite fun. Uh, I really enjoy looking at good design a lot. And uh, I can't imagine there's many people who hate it, you know. Maybe, <laughs> maybe they hate getting into the habit, you know. I, I personally have a, a reminder that tells me oh. to go and look at sort of, yeah, design inspiration every Wednesday. And so that reminds me to go and look at all of my sort of standard website uh, collections for new websites they've added just so I can look at new design or good design um, every week. Okay. So you're blocking time to do this. And Yeah. Otherwise I'd probably forget. I okay. I love a good um, checklist item or a task. <laughs> Where are you going to look at visual design? There's like a, a set of standard. Uh, let me just find them here. So I'll, I'll read them out, but the places I go, and this is only website inspiration, but the places I go for inspiration and to look at good design are, they're called uh, Lapa Ninja, uh, Landbook, Godly Design, which I think is quite popular on Twitter. So you might have come across that. Um, there's one called SAS Landing Page, and there's one called Site Inspire. And they're updated at different sort of intervals and with different frequencies. But generally I found that those five, if I go and look at those every Wednesday, they all have something new. And there's some repeats, but they all have something new I can look at that is generally considered an example of good design. But even then you can look at them and think, actually, I'm not a fond of this part of this design. Yeah. So it helps you see stuff that you realize you don't like. Helps you develop your taste. Yeah. If you expose yourself to that much design over the course of a few years, um, you can easily look back and see, oh, wait, my, my taste has changed. My ability to produce good design has changed. I'm aware of hundreds or thousands of more patterns I can use. Uh, because now I look at stuff and I see something and I think, oh, I, I think I saw something similar, you know, two years ago. I don't know exactly when I did, but um, it helps you to sort of recognize those things and give you even more tools in your toolbox of visual design patterns. That's really cool. And we can include those links in the show notes um, because oh, yeah. I'm 100% going to set up a reoccurring calendar invite for myself <laughs> to do this. Mm. So I think that's so smart. These are much harder for um, like application interface inspiration, but there's a couple of uh, Twitter accounts I follow that basically post screenshots of SaaS applications every day. Mm -hmm. And that's much harder because you have to sign up for SaaS applications, whereas websites are naturally publicly visible. Yep. Because that's their purpose. But um, and so I didn't used to have a way to see 
sort of inspirational good design for inside applications. But now I do because I follow these two accounts, which we can also link. Okay. And um, they basically post every day. And so I always tap on the screenshot and have a look at what they're, how they're doing things. Uh, I will say that you'll learn a lot less just because SaaS applications are much more uniform in terms of their style, uh, which is its own interesting topic. But um, yeah, it's good to see, especially for things like layout patterns. And it's also good to see so you can prove to yourself that they are very uniform in terms of their approach. Uh, because that's useful to know if you're doing visual design for a, a SaaS application that you don't need to push the boat out every time. Mm. You can, you know, take some pretty standard approaches and be considered good. Yeah. That's really cool. I think I take a lot of inspiration from people's personal sites, especially front-end developer slash designer type people who design and implement their own sites. Usually mm. you can tell they had a lot of fun with it. <laughs> so it's always a lot good of time with it as well. Yeah, they, yeah. Yeah. And then they want to rip it apart after they finally ship it and are like, okay, time for round two of redesign. Mm. But there, there are yeah, people who, yes, there are people who definitely do that like yearly and have a brand new design every year, which I think is really inspiring. Yeah. There's something there in the designer personality that makes mm -hmm. it irresistible. <laughs> I suppose if we were allowed to, we'd redesign the products we work on every year as well. Oh, so yeah. I'm we're glad not. There are people who stop us. <laughs> we're not allowed to use that word redesign it at, like in any job. <laughs> <It's> a, <laughs> not, or yeah. refactor. Those two words are pretty alarming. Mm. Yeah, probably for the best. Yeah. Well, great. That was really awesome. I feel like I learned a lot from all of those various topics. And I'm really excited to block some time for myself to invest in just looking at more visual design every Wednesday <laughs> or whatever day <laughs> I choose. Yeah, I think even, let's call that the passive approach. I think even that passive approach will help anyone improve. But uh, like I say, it will take a lot longer. So you have to be prepared to yeah. do it over the course of years. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's definitely worked for me and it feels practical even if it's slow. Excellent. Thanks everybody for listening this week. Yeah. Thank you for letting me be a bit more ranty than even usual. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure you can tell this is something I've thought about a lot. So um, yeah, it's uh, very kind of you to let me let it all out. Yeah, I was, I'm very excited to pick your brain about this stuff. So thanks for sharing your knowledge and we'll see everyone in the next one. <laughs>